In the live delivery of this lecture, my microphone died just past the 21 minute mark. I re-recorded the end of this lecture in my studio, and this audio recording reflects that. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to our Sunday School class. We are on the road to Philemon. One would say we haven't even stepped onto that road yet, but I assure you we have. In doing all of this background work, we are working our way to exegete the tiny letter of Philemon. We have been talking for the first three weeks of this study, going into literary structure and literary devices. These are ways in which authors will structure a passage uh, it is very intelligently done. It is purposely done. Uh, it's really quite impressive. So the first two weeks, we showed what's called... Actually, you tell me. What did we show? What was the structure that we showed? Chiastic. You got it, Marlene. Chiastic structure. Who can, give, who can give the whole class, for those who weren't there, a quick, brief review of what chiastic structure is? Be brave. Be bold. <laughs> Dill. Chiastic uh, structure is a literary structure where the focus of the whole text is in the middle, where every uh, the concentric sentence circles, where the line before and line after parallel or uh, are opposite to each other and kind of stand out from there. But the big focus of the whole thing is right in the middle. Yeah, so like a passage will bring up information on the upswing and then repeat it when you're at the downswing going back up towards the middle. And then the, center, the central idea will pop out at you at the end of the repetition of ideas. It'll be right there. And that is how we can find out hinge points key axis moments in a text. This is what the author is emphasizing here. We looked at that in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved, as well as the flood narrative. Last week we introduced another literary structure, and it is called covenantal structure. You've probably all heard the word covenant before, especially if you've read your Bible, particularly the Old Testament. There are all kinds of covenants that God is making. He makes them with Abraham. He makes one with Noah. He makes one with David. Uh, he's making covenants all over the place. And if we look at the accounts of these covenants being made, it follows by having these certain elements that are basically always there in every single one of these covenants. These same elements show up. And so some pretty brilliant scholars have found a pattern there in the way that these structures are made. And it is the five-fold covenantal structure. You can see it on your notes on page five. But it starts out with sovereignty. Sovereignty is the introduction of the parties. Uh, covenants are made between God and image bearers of God. So it starts out by showing who the sovereigns are. Who are the people being uh, included in this covenant. The second step is mediation. In a covenant making account, this is when God starts talking about 
Uh, so I am the Lord your God, the one who took you out of Egypt, who threw the plagues on the pharaohs, who guided you into the promised land. So you're, he's showing how he mediated uh, the prologue, the whole history. This is why you can trust me. This is how I am faithful. Look what I have done for you. So this is a very common way that covenants are made. And then it moves to stipulation. Stipulation is usually the big part. Stipulation is when you get the laws, your ethics, your plan, or boundaries. This is where we're going now. I've, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt, and now I say this. I want you to treat the men this way. I want you to treat fatherhood this way. Treat the women this way. I want you to do this. And this is when God's given you all of his stipulations. And when he's done giving you the ethics and the laws... It moves to sanctions, and sanctions is the ratifying of the covenant that is being made. You're now going to seal what has been said, usually through a sign, through a sacrament, through a sacrifice. You, you have witnesses watching this happen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now I say I want you to obey me when you come into the land. Treat everybody this way. If you obey me, you will follow my laws and I will bless you. But if you do not obey me, all the curses I have put on the people will fall upon you. So that's your blessings, your curses, the ratifying, the sealing. So that is the, the part where you get to the sanctions. And then finally, succession. And succession is the game plan for it continuing on. You've now heard everything about the covenant being made. You've ratified it. You've heard the blessings and the curses that are attached to this covenant. Now it moves to how are we going to continue this? We are going to put it on to our children. We're going to train up our children in the ways of the Lord. Um, and, and we'll see some other ways that the, uh, the covenant then continues from that point on. This is your fivefold covenantal structure. And we looked at, I think it was three different examples where we saw these elements. For review's sake, let's do one more look at a covenant being made out of Joshua chapter 24. We did not look at this one last week in detail. Joshua 24. We are going to look at an example in the Bible, and that is where we left off last week, and then we'll pick up where we left off. Joshua 24, this whole chapter is set up essentially in covenantal structure. We get the covenant renewal at Shechem. One of the things I pointed out last week is how often they have to renew the covenant. They renewed it in like all these different places, and that matters because in a symbolic and a spiritual sense, what is happening when we come together on Lord's Day? We're renewing the covenant, or God's renewing the covenant with us. Not that we're apart from his covenant if we don't do this. That's why it is a symbolic and a spiritual thing where every Lord's Day we are renewing this covenant, just as the people of Israel had to renew the covenant with God. 
Joshua chapter 24, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. All right, what part is that? There, there, you already have your sovereignty. Thus says the Lord. We're introduced to the sovereign and all the people are before him. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. You can already tell. Where are we going into now? Mediation, historical prologue. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nabor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of them. And afterward I brought you out. We're still in mediation. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of sights. <laughs> and I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Let's stop there for a sec. That is all mediation. All historical prologue. Are the Israelites here, are, the, are these Hebrew people unaware that God has done these things? Would they be completely unaware that God did this? No, they know. This is 40 years they had to be in the wilderness, so the next generation was already upon them. They're getting, he's getting ready to transfer leadership to Joshua and go in, but it was their fathers who solved this, their fathers and their mothers. They know how they got to this point. And yet God is still recapping everything that he has done. Do you think it would be very encouraging to the people who are standing ready to go into the promised land to hear, I did this, I did this, then I did this. Do you think we need that encouragement sometimes? We know these things, but sometimes we need to be reminded, this is how God has worked. This is how he made everything work. This is how he has taken care of you. I think in moments when we're tempted to have fear. The Israelites constantly had fear. It is good to be reminded of how God has worked. How he has worked per not just personally for us, but in bodies as a whole. <coughs> History is very important. We can be very encouraged by it when we should not fear knowing it. So all of that is historical prologue. It's all part of mediation. Look what I did for you. 
Verse 14 represents a change now. Now, therefore, because of everything that I have just told you, of how I have mediated, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Where are we now in? Stipulation. I'm telling you now, fear him and serve him, but do it in sincerity and faithfulness, not with heartlessness or out of just uh, ritual. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay, so that is stipulation. This is now the plan. This is what you are to do. There is another element brought in here that won't be clearly demonstrated later on, even if it is actually going on, and that is the one of succession. He's brought up his house. It's not just me. I'm bringing this to my house. This is how we're going to continue it. That element is there in the end of 15 there, which is one of the most popular verses in all the Bible. 16, then the people answered. Actually, this is representing a shift now. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great things in our sight, and preserved us all in the way that we went, and among all the peoples with whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God." They are committing themselves now to serving God. Yep, everything you've said, you've given me the plan, you told me how you did it, I know who I'm covenanting with, I'm going to start committing to doing this. 19, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Do you think a prosperity church is going to preach on those verses? And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Okay, so that is all describing the sanctions part of the covenant. We are confirming ourselves. The witnesses are there. The curses are there. Every part of a classic sanctions part of a covenant is there. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth, and that was the, by the sanctuary of the Lord. And he said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So he sent away the people, every man to his inheritance. An inheritance is part of, is indicating succession. They have to go back to their place and now live out the covenant. Now, live in this in your inheritance. The thing that is yours, the, the place that is yours with the people that are yours. 
you take these five elements, you will find them in other covenants that are being made. That is just an example. We looked at three last week. Did I say that they were preparing to transfer to Joshua earlier? I think I made a mistake there. It's already Joshua. He's about to die. Fix that mistake. So this is a structure that we see. This is a biblical example of that structure. It's repeated in the covenants that are being made in Scripture. And where we left off is, why do biblical authors write according to this structure? Well, on the one hand, it's God who is making the who's making this structure. He's the one who's showing up to people and just saying and doing this basic structure every time he comes and makes a covenant. So God's the one who's speaking this way, and then the people are just writing in accordance to it, and then we get to see the pattern that is being made. Their understanding of how we relate to God is we relate to him the way that he shows that he relates to us. We don't get to go to God any which way we please. It even said in Joshua 24, he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. It's not open season going to God. Now, what that doesn't negate is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers means that all of us have access to God. We don't have to go through a priest to have access to God. Priesthood of all believers in the new covenant. That is very true. And yet, we are still not to bring false worship, strange fire, before the Lord. That refers to events that happened in the Old Testament. But God wants to be worshipped how he's revealed that he wants to be worshipped. And we worship him according to his statutes, according to how he has revealed. And so we can say... Uh, he has revealed himself through covenant. That is how we are going to worship him, in accordance with the covenant that he has made. We are in the new covenant. How does he want us to worship him? Very relevant question. And so, because of their understanding of how we relate to God is through covenants, when they write this way, it's assuring us, like in Joshua 24 here, God is holy, true, and faithful in how he deals with his people. He is holy. He is jealous. He is sure to do it. He will do it. He will bless us. He does bless us. So they write according to this structure. I'm going to move to a non-biblical example of this structure. But before I get there, is there any questions or comments? We're good? Let's move on. Think of a traditional marriage ceremony. In a traditional marriage ceremony, and I'm not going to get every single detail of, of the, the ceremony, but it actually loosely follows, not even loosely, it, it follows this pattern pretty closely. There's some elements that maybe don't fit perfectly under it, but generally speaking, a traditional religious marriage ceremony follows a covenantal structure. What is a marriage? A marriage is a covenant that two people make before God that they will fulfill their vows of husband and wife. A marriage is a lot more than a contract. See, a contract you do as long as both sides are fulfilling their side. You put in your part orders and they're going to fulfill it. Oh, you didn't have my parts. I'm going to break this contract. You reneged on the contract. You know, as long as we're both benefiting, we're going to keep this contract. That's not exactly the way that a marriage is. A marriage is a covenant not so much a contract. There's contractual parts to it, but primarily a marriage is a covenant that you make. Two inferiors making a covenant to the superior 
God, that we will do as we have vowed. And so when you think of marriage as a covenant, which it is that you make before God, then it makes a lot of sense that the way we get married would follow a covenantal structure. So what happens at the beginning of a marriage ceremony? People are going to walk down the aisle and play the nice music and the flower, the cute flower girl is going to go and the, the ring boy, what is the ring bearer, there it is. He's going to come up, he's going to bring his rings, They're gonna, the, the groom's going to be standing there, the bride's going to come down. You have, in the very first step, the introduction of the parties, the sovereignty part. We need to know who's making this covenant here, and it's very dramatic when the bride comes down. But you have the introduction, I have it in your notes, introduction of the parties, right at the beginning of the ceremony. That makes sense. And then often, the minister, the, the ordained minister, or, uh, these days, it's open season, so whoever, but in the traditional ceremony, the minister will then go up, and often there will be some sharing about how they met. This is Steve and Brenda. Steve was working, blah, 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 and Brenda was noticed him, and Steve noticed her, and they became friends, and Steve got very bold and asked her on a date, and Brenda was blown away and said yes, and they have been together for six months, and I don't know, six years, whatever. You're introducing them and you're sharing how they met, how it grew, and Steve was so romantic. And the story is told about how their union came together. This is the historical prologue to their relationship. This follows with the mediation part of the covenantal structure. The parties are introduced, sovereignty, and then some historical prologue is given how their relationship has grown and come to the point that they're at today. That is the mediation part. And then we get the part that we all stay awake for in the marriage ceremony, which is when the pastor will give the sermon. And in a traditional wedding, there is a sermon where the pastor is going to talk about the ultimate, the picture of the ultimate groom and bride, capital G, capital B. And who is the ultimate groom and who is the ultimate bride, of course, is Christ and church. The coming together of Christ and church is our ultimate picture of marriage. And so the couple is playing out this drama in real life, this union of Christ and church, union of man and woman, husband and wife. And so the pastor is going to give a sermon about this, and that is the stipulation part of the covenant. He, it's usually the longest part is that section, and that is, that is proper, and it's right in the middle of the marriage ceremony. And after the pastor has explained what marriage is, what they are getting themselves into, what it is picturing, how it's ordained by God. We then move to the ring part. And so that section of the ceremony is when you then give your vows to each other. I blank take blank is my lawfully, to be my lawfully wedded blank, blah, blah, blah. And you do your vows in front of witnesses. It needs to be heard. It needs to be before witnesses. And afterwards, you put the ring on, symbolizing this union, that I have, am now going to do what I have vowed in front of all these witnesses. This ring is, is the symbol that I will do it. You kiss the bride, 
and you then swear it by signing the documents of the state, the province, the nation, whatever. You, you swear it legally right then and there, you sign. And all of this is part of the sanctions part of the covenantal structure. So we've had four parts already in this ceremony. Sovereignty, mediation, stipulation, sanctions. And you see all the, the classic markers of the sanctions part of a covenant. You're swearing before an authority. You will have witnesses. You're taking a symbol of some kind that you will do as you have vowed. And you're invoking the blessing and the curse of the covenant that you are getting into. And then finally, uh, there is the, the the succession part of the covenant corresponds with the um, with the consummation. So the consummation of the marriage, you don't thankfully we don't we don't see that part, but consummation is the final part. And succession is all about going forward then or moving to the towards f the future. And so how that takes shape is obviously in, in consummation of the wedding. But some cultures and some weddings, they have what's called a unity ceremony. And a unity ceremony, it comes after the ring, after the kiss, after the vows, all that. And it could be some, it's strange sometimes to think about this, but a unity ceremony might be jumping over a broom, or you shatter some glass, or there's all these types of things. And it's, it's kind of a symbol of the consummation without uh, doing the act right then and there. And so some people do that. It's a symbol of the consummation. And then, of course, through consummation, you can get the propagation of children, which corresponds to the succession of the covenant. So in a marriage ceremony, you have all five parts of the covenantal structure, which makes a whole lot of sense because marriage is a covenant that you're making before a holy God. You aren't swearing just before man. You're actually swearing before God. And you are swearing that you will do your side of the covenant, whether your partner fulfills their side fully or not. And that is the beautiful part about a covenant, is we're not just doing this because out of contractual, for contractual reasons, if we're both benefiting, we're both going to keep doing this. No, like this is a covenant, not just a contract. And so the marriage ceremony follows the covenantal structure. And another example outside of scripture where we see the covenantal structure is in liturgy. It is in the form of how we worship. Now that word liturgy can be something of a bad word or a, uh, people are skeptical of liturgy today, especially churches that are very modern and don't have a lot of historical, traditional um, parts to their worship, they will hear that word liturgy and automatically think that's bad. That is putting tradition over scripture. That is putting man above God. Like we're just following these these certain traditions that are, that are not scriptural. We're afraid of the word liturgy. And we shouldn't be because at its base, liturgy is it's not a bad word. It's simply a description of how we worship. Liturgy is just describing how we worship. If you go to church and you, you'll probably be given an order of worship or an order of service or a bulletin, there's different words for it, but essentially it tells you exactly how the service is going to go. We're going to start with this, then we're going to go to these songs, and then there's going to be a prayer, and then there's going to be some scripture reading, then there's going to be some more songs, a sermon, 
uh, maybe there'll be a baptism and benediction. You know, something like that. And, there, and you'll have the full order of service. That order of service is liturgy. It is liturgy. It is describing how we worship. Every single church has liturgy, and actually every single person has private liturgy. How you worship God is your liturgy. Even the churches that say that they are uh, spirit-led and they do engage in free worship, that is, they're not trying to be hung down by traditions, uh, so-called, and all that, they're still following a liturgy, too. Even a free form where you change up the order of everything every week, like that's still a form of liturgy. So it's not a bad word. It's just a description of how we worship. And a good way to think about that word is that liturgy is theology in action. So if you have very poor theology, if your view of God is low and poor, then your liturgy is going to be poor. How we worship determines whom we worship. And that's an important thing to say. Because if we start changing the form of worship, that is how we worship God, we will, by necessity, change the content of worship, the whom we worship. So, in the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, God tells us that he wants to be worshipped the way that he has showed that he wants to be worshipped. He said that you shall not make images, you shall not bow down to them, um, and all that. You can read the second commandment. But what that commandment is saying in the positive sense is that he wants to be worshipped the way that he is revealed. We call this the regulative principle of worship. Reformed churches have followed this for centuries. So God does, it's not open season. And all, everything's open season these days, but it's not before God with how we worship. Nadab and Nabihu brought strange fire. That is, they were unauthorized to bring that fire at that time, and God struck them dead. Even though they thought they were worshiping the true God, they were doing it in a way that he did not authorize. And so he did not approve of their worship, and he killed them. Think of the golden calf incident. When Moses is up on the mountain, he's up there for some time, the people are getting antsy, like, uh, clearly this guy ain't coming back. So they tell Aaron that they want him to take their jewelry and forge, uh, forge God into the calf, the golden calf. And what's happening there is the people of Israel are not saying that this calf is God. They were the ones who saw God work these plagues uh, to the Egyptians and carried them out to the, that far out of Egypt into the wilderness and all that in front of the mountain. But the calf was supposed to be a symbol of that God who brought them out. So they thought they were still worshiping the true God, but they were doing it in a completely unauthorized and paganized way, a way that God did not tell them he wanted to be worshiped. And so God nearly destroys all of them. Moses intercedes and the people are spared. Uh, but there is judgment for that. God judges unauthorized worship. And he wants to be worshipped the way he's revealed. And so our liturgy is supposed to, to have a God-honoring liturgy is to worship God the way that he has revealed that he wants to be worshipped. And so we don't bring in new inventions or, or do things that are outside of what he has revealed. And when we worship we have to remember that the way we worship determines whom we worship. There's an old 
Latin phrase lex arandi, lex credendi, which means the law of prayer is the law of belief. The law of prayer is the law of belief. Essentially, it's saying the way that you, in this case, the way you pray will determine how you believe. You will ultimately pray what you believe. If your prayers are really poor and sporadic and there's not much going on there, it's indicative of your belief about God. You will pray, or so the law of prayer is the law of belief. These things are very linked and connected. How we worship determines whom we worship. There is a connection between liturgy and then faithfulness to God. And so, again, think of your church's order of worship. I asked the class about our church's liturgy, and I said, how long, I asked them, how long has this been our order of worship? And there's some old people in the class, and I asked them, when was the last, has this ever been substantially different? When was the last time? And they couldn't remember. It has been the same order of worship for decades. Nobody could remember when it was substantially different. And that's not a bad thing. If you have a faithful liturgy, it's not a bad thing that it's the same every week. That's actually very faithful because the reason I bring this up is every single Sunday, every Lord's Day, in a symbolic and a spiritual sense, we are renewing the covenant with God. You remember when we looked in the book of Joshua and some other places about how often the covenant was being renewed. The people were always renewing their covenant. They already made it, but they had to keep on renewing it. And this is what is happening every single Lord's Day in a symbolic sense. We're re renewing the covenant with God. He is visiting us. We are confessing our sin. He is absolving us and assuring us. And we worship him in a pure sense. And we are renewing the covenant. So the order of worship in, in a lot of Reformed churches follows this covenantal structure. In our own bulletin at the church, it starts with call to worship. And that'll be a passage of scripture which calls the people together, now worship him today, and blah, blah, whatever it is, you find a verse that uh, calls the people now to worship. That marks the beginning of the service. And this corresponds with the sovereignty part of the covenantal structure. You're being, the, the sovereign God is calling us little sovereigns his church, to come now to worship. Now, I did ask our class, what is the first thing that we do? And some said, the call to worship. It's like, no, 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 even before that, we actually do stuff in our church before the call to worship. And they're thinking, they're thinking like, uh, and I'm like, announcements. And they're like, oh, right, right, right. We do announcements first at our church. Technically, the worship service does not start when the person goes up and starts giving the announcements. It starts when the call to worship is read, when God, that, which is God's voice through scripture, calling his people, sovereignty. There it is. This, that, that's what it corresponds to. That's when the worship service starts. Right before that, after our announcements, we do a, we pause for, to quiet our hearts. We just have a moment of silence to prepare for worship. It still hasn't even technically started then. We do that in a prayer of focus. The service still hasn't started then. It starts at the call to worship. Then... We sing a couple songs, and then after the couple songs, we go to a scripture reading and the pastoral prayer of confession. At least that this prayer part is supposed to be a prayer of confession. Lord, we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and in attitude. This week we have fallen short of your law and your standards and your statutes. 
this prayer is supposed to be the pastor representing his people uh, that we are confessing our sin to God, that we are not worthy even of the prom the covenantal promise of our God. And so this is supposed to happen every single week. And then after the confession of sin is supposed to be the words of assurance or words of absolution. And this is another portion of scripture where we are assured that sin is forgiven when we plead the blood of Christ and it is put on the Son and we are absolved of our sin. So this corresponds with the mediation part of the structure. We've had sovereignty, now we have mediation. Our prayer of, and we receive uh, our prayer of confession, we receive the words of assurance. Then at our church we sing a couple songs, and then we go to the the sermon part. And the sermon is usually the longest part of worship, though not always. And the sermon, of course, corresponds with stipulation. This is God's law coming to us, his plan, his ethics that is being explained to us. The pastor does not have the authority to go into his opinions, to just preach a nice moralistic message of topics. He's supposed to be explaining the scriptures. It is God's voice we are supposed to be hearing, not the preacher's. He's coming through the preacher, but the preacher's job is to be faithful to what God's plan is, not what his own plan is. This is why exegetical expository preaching is so important. This is It fits into the covenantal structure. This is when God's supposed to be talking, not man. And so the sermon part happens. After the sermon is when, so the stipulation part, right after stipulation, you get to the sanctions part of the covenant, and that corresponds to sacraments. Now, there is some variance amongst the Reformed people about where should the sacraments be in the service. Not only where should they be, but also how often should we perform the sacraments, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper, and or communion. And so there's different views on this. Some people say that baptisms should come during the mediation part, um, but many say that it comes after the sermon, after we have heard God's plan, we have heard his stipulation, we've heard his law, we then commit ourselves through these visible signs that we are covenant members who bind ourselves to what has been read, what has been explained, what has been proclaimed, and so then we will partake of the Lord's Supper, or we will do baptisms. Some churches, uh, including my own, does baptisms at the beginning uh, of service, after the call to worship. So there's different views. And then the other one is frequency. But this is why some churches do weekly communion. It's because if we are, in a symbolic and spiritual sense, renewing the covenant every Sunday, then we should be, renew we should be performing our seal of the covenant every week. The, the sanctions part, we are committing ourselves to the covenant again. And so that would come through communion. Uh, other churches do it once a month, others do it a few times a year, some do it like once a year. There's different ideas on frequency, but this is where it fits in. The sacraments correspond to sanctions. We are committing and binding ourselves to this covenant. And then finally, the last part of the structure is succession. And succession is when you hear your benediction and you get, th this is more than just a throwaway part of the service. Like, this is when God is clothing you in the, his, his power and grace to then go into your week. And you are committing yourself to receive the clothing that he is giving 
he, that he has given to you through his word, that you can receive and have the grace that he has given at the end of the service to, to face the week. I also believe that this is where tithing fits in. There's other views on tithing too. Are we supposed to pass out a plate? Is there supposed to be an offering box at the front and everybody goes up front at a certain time? Or is it supposed to be in a box in the back? And after service, after we've, we've heard everything, we've gone through all the parts of the, of the structure, now the, our first act of obedience is we deliver and give our tithes. And the tithe can also correspond to the continuing of the church. The church needs finances, which all belongs to the Lord, but a portion of the finances goes to the church to be doing the ministry that they are doing. And so that corresponds well with succession, how we keep moving forward. And so I'm of the, of the view that the tithe should be a box in the back that we deliver on our way out. Uh, this is different. We're in an internet time. People give through credit cards online a monthly amount or a weekly amount, or especially since COVID, it's been even more online-based. So I wonder if we're missing something by not physically then giving in the back as a symbol of this structure. I'll have to think more about that, but... That, that's my view. The tithe and the benediction corresponds with succession. And so, what is the what is the order of worship at your church? This is the one at, at ours, and it's been the same one for decades, and our order of service pretty closely resembles this covenantal structure. Now, if the call to worship is sovereignty, pastoral prayer of confession and words of assurance is mediation, the sermon is stipulation, sacraments are the sanctions, and the tithe and benediction is succession, where does music fit in? Are we supposed to be having music in worship? Where does it fit into this structure? I asked this to the class, and people were starting to get a little bit antsy. People didn't want to answer. <laughs> they were like, yes, music, we're supposed to worship God through music. Of course we are. The Psalms are littered with come to the Lord with singing, worship in song with the trumpet, the lyre, the harp, sing to the Lord a new song. Of course they're supposed to be singing in worship. I scared them for a minute there. But here's the answer. Where does music fit in? It fits between the parts but should not be emphasized over any part. So this is an issue. Some churches, a lot of modern churches, seeker-sensitive churches, you show up and the first thing you get is music and they, they'll sing for like 30 minutes, if not more, and you'll have a little bit of Bible reading, maybe a short sermon, and just a bunch more music and it just goes on and on and on. And music is the big part that that defines their worship setting. But what is music? What, like, what are we doing when we sing in a worship service? We're worshiping God. Yes, we are worshiping God, but on a deeper level, the music is our response to God. There's an old reformed uh, principle of worship called the dialogical principle of worship, which basically means that we're doing this back and forth type of dialogue with God when we are in Lord's Day worship. So the call to worship right at the beginning is God speaking to us. It's his word coming to us. That's God speaking. And then the song that we sing after that is our response to God. We respond to his call to worship by worshiping. So that is a symbol of our response to him. 
the pastoral prayer of confession and it is us talking through the pastor. He represents us to confess our sin. And then the words of assurance is God talking back to us. We are assured and absolved of sin. And then we thank God with another song. That is our response to what he has done. The sermon is God talking to us. We then respond with a song after the sermon. The baptism and the Lord's Supper is God communicating grace to us. That's his turn to talk. And then we respond with another song of praise. Finally, the benediction. We, we, are, we end with God's commission to us. And then we don't respond in song. So all this is like a, a, a dialogue that's going on between God and us. And music is our response back to God. And, every, and the other parts is God talking to us. And so if there is this dialogue going on, who should have the more, who should have more say? God or us? Of course the answer is God. Music should not be emphasized over the parts because then we are saying that we, like we are doing more of the talking. We are talking over God. Our voice is emphasized over his. And that is when we start violating good liturgy. We're supposed to be mostly hearing from God and we respond to God. We're not the initiators. He is. And so God gets to do most of the talking and then we get to do some response. To emphasize music over the parts is to elevate man over God in worship. And then finally, the benediction is the final part of the worship service because God gets the final say. He gets the first say in the call to worship and he gets the final say in the benediction. We get to respond in between with music. So in each of the parts, we get to respond in music, but we don't get to emphasize our voice over God's. So... Music should not be emphasized over the parts, but God gets the emphasis. Now, that so, so pay attention to liturgy. It's a really good thing. It's a beautiful thing. We honor God through a good liturgy. And the reason uh, that I bring up all this covenantal structure stuff is because the letter of Philemon is written according to this covenantal structure. And that is something that we're going to talk about in the next lecture. But the five Philemon is in five parts, which follows this structure. I'm excited to show it to you. Thank you for listening to this lecture, and we'll get into that in the next one.